Can you introduce yourself? Yeah. So my name is Professor Pat Dolan. I'm director of the Institute for Life Course and Society at NUI Galway. And I'm also UNESCO chair for Children, Youth and Civic Engagement here at the university. And maybe we could talk about what is the Institute for Life and Society and kind of what it uh, covers as an institute and, and what it does as such. Well, the Institute for Life Course and Society really brings together very much applied research, first of all. So what I mean by that is not, re- you know, research and theory development is really important and knowledge development is really important. But it's really important that we have impact on research. So one of the things that's really important about the Institute for Life Course and Society is that it does research that impacts on civic society. Within Life Course, although we have three populations that we do a lot of research on, that includes older people, including dementia research, children and youth research, a lot on either youth development or prevention of abuse and harm research. And then we also do a lot of research supporting people who live their lives with a disability. You know, those three areas of research are kind of very common in the work we do here. But we try and connect these things together by looking at them as a life course concept. We have other research centres here that take on that mantle as well. And when I say life course, most people kind of wonder, what does that mean? It's kind of a strange term. Well, it's different to life cycle, first of all. And people might be, you know, the idea of life cycle, like recycling. So we don't recycle humans, not yet anyway. <laughs> that, that may come in, in future generations, uh, uh, Stepford Wives or whatever. But um, that's why we don't use the term life cycle, actually. Life course is, in a way, to think of all of us, we're on a journey here. We may not feel like it, and everything changes in life. That's the one thing we know is that nothing stays the same. And the most natural way of understanding life course is ageing, of course, that we're born. And ironically, if we live long enough, our needs will be the same as when we were born. People find this a bit hard to believe. We start off not being able to feed ourselves, not being able to walk, not being able to toilet ourselves with no hair, no teeth uh, and so forth. We may end up, well, particularly I've no hair, but you may end up with no teeth. You may not be able to toilet yourself. I know that sounds very coarse, but pardon the pun, but life is a course that runs. And you have normative life course, which is what we wish for everybody that people have good well-being, good sense of uh, enjoyment of life with few, you know, n- normal challenges, but nothing outside of normal challenges. But for some people, unfortunately, life can be quite a challenge and people experience adversity. And we're really interested in this institute in trying to look at those adversities, not in a stigmatising way for people, but in a way that really uh, enables them to get some kind of emancipation from their problems. And that's really what we're interested in researching. And studying, I suppose, the totality through various disciplines of someone's life course, and looking on your website, there's obviously a dimension to studying it so that it could be applied to policy making and things like that. Is that something that is done now or is is it more that you're still in the, the state of kind of just gathering all this data? No, it's very much around policy influence, which is to be really frank about it, it is an amazing challenge. We've advised some policy in Ireland across a whole range of things from family support and child protection through to rights for people with disability, through to pensions and older people and, and all that kind of area. And one of the challenges about it, without being disingenuous to politicians, is that or to policy makers, one of the problems we have in Ireland and in other countries is we've too much policy actually. What we don't have enough of is implementation of policy. So one of the key tricks in the research that we try 
uh, to advance is turning policy into actionable things that make a difference. I'll give you an example of that actually might be a good way of doing it. A number of years ago, we were asked, we were commissioned by the Department of Children and Youth Affairs to do research on young people who are carers, which is completely out of sync of the life course. Because naturally, you know, as those of us that are listening that are adults, we think of caring for our children or maybe caring for our older parents or, or whatever that might be. But in this case, this was a case of where children were caring for older people, including their parents, in some cases where parents had disability. I always remember when we were, um, a colleague of ours here, Dr. Danielle Kennan, led on the research and we worked very closely on it. And I remember when we were doing that research, we produced a quite, an, I won't say a telephone book of a research report, but quite an extensive detailed research report. But it was when you heard the stories of a young kid talking about going home from school and having to change his mother's nappy. It made it very real. And in fairness to the Department of Children and Youth Affairs, when they heard those stories and they heard about the loss of childhood, which is what that young, in that particular case, that enabled services to be developed for young carers. Not enough of them, but it put something in place that hadn't been there before. So I like to think of that as a good case of impactful life course research. It's a good example, I think. Maybe we could talk about some of your own authored work as, a, as an academic. Obviously, you're involved with the Institute for Life Course and, and the UNESCO family. I do apologise. I've forgotten the, the, the particular... That's okay. UNESCO Child and Family Research Centre. That's okay. All right, yeah. It certainly is. Yeah. Exactly. Well, it doesn't match the... People <laughs> might think it does. It doesn't match the length of the title. All right. So, not yeah. A, a diff, uh, on a, yeah, exactly. And then, well, tell us a little bit more about your own kind of areas of research that you've published in journals and things like that. Well, just to, to contextualise that a bit, I worked for many years in practice as a service manager, as a youth worker. I Before I... Uh, escaped, I don't know, drifted into academia, whatever. I don't, I, well, definitely not became a nerd. I don't see myself as a nerd, but hopefully nobody else does. But joking apart, before I became interested in an academic career, I worked in the field, which I think has been helpful to me because it, it has enabled me to do research. I think that has remained, I hope, very grounded. I mean, the range of work we're doing at the moment that I'm leading on and colleagues on the centre, I'm very involved in a, a, very, a very extensive project for four years looking at the development of empathy education. And, and a better understanding of social empathy, so empathy education in secondary schools. And as part of that, we've trained young people to be researchers, youth. So this is youth research. So we've trained young people to be researchers. You know, you can look at these on our website. We've got them to do the research, which is really fascinating. And then rather than write a boring research report, they, they've produced short four or five minute videos. And we've been really lucky that our good friend and a close friend of mine, an incredible patron of the, the centre here, actor Killian Murphy, Killian has worked with youth here, both here and in Paris and, and in various places internationally, where we've worked with young people to produce really, I think, fantastic research evidence that's really interesting through four or five minute videos. And frankly, we have the research reports as well. We have the evidence because we have to. It's what I'm judged on, as any academic is judged on. But we like to think that we, we do both. We do the the kind of paperwork, for want of a better term, and academic journals and so forth, which is ranked the same as anybody else. And I supervise PhD students and all these things that we do in universities. But we also have for public human consumption, for want of a better term, a much more effective form of dissemination of research. So the other piece of research we're working on, I'm working with a close colleague in Penn State University, Professor Mark Brennan, fellow UNESCO chair actually, on major research for LUMOS, which is J.K. Rowling's funded and supported a program to end institutionalisation of children in large orphanages. 
frighteningly there is an orphanage industry which is not talked about which is a real worry it's a tourism industry around orphanages which is not talked about and we're doing research on how we can kind of get that story and the truth behind that story researched pro- properly and obviously we're working with them on trying to build up the evidence not to place children in large orphanages there are 8 million at least 8 million children around the world 85% of which have parents who are in large orphanages that don't need to be in large orphanages we ne- they need to be closed so that's a really interesting piece of research. And then more locally with colleagues, we've worked with Tusla here in Ireland on, on prevention and early intervention and parenting support research, uh, which my colleague John Canavan has led on. And I've, you know, we've been very happy to work on that. So child welfare, family support, prevention of child abuse, coupled with youth development will be the main areas of research. And I suppose one of the things that definitely got me interested in what is happening or or what is produced here in the the Institute is the the idea of an adult transition or transition phases uh, towards one's life. And I think for a lot of uh, people, kind of the 20 to 30 year old bracket can certainly be considered quite a transitional time in general. What are the things that I suppose could possibly define those transitions or changes and, and the difference in what you're expected to do during that age group and expectations. It's really interesting and we you know this is something that we we are and continue to look at very closely. So just to to ground it a little bit in historical context. So in 1904 uh, Stanley Hall wrote a famous book which was about was the first description of adolescence. He used these terms that storm and drag, that storm and stress that every adolescent had to go to storm and stress to go from the pathway from childhood to adolescence to adulthood. You know, ranging from early maturation and adolescence from 13, 14, right up to mid-20s. And in many ways, and that was, you know, that actually is disproven because we know that most young people do fine on their transitions. But it's really interesting that the length of the gap. So even when I was younger, I'm not that old, but when I was younger, the adolescent gap between being child and adult was a lot tighter. You nearly went automatically the phase of adolescence. So, you know, people talk a lot about the kind of James Dean era as the first discovery of adolescence and in Western civic society. But that has all changed drastically now. And it's changed in, in Ireland. It's really interesting that for economic reasons, not just the, um, the collapse of the Celtic Tiger, there are other factors to it, but the number of young people that can get affordable housing in both cities and rural areas, and it's complicated by city migration as well, but that that transition period is much longer. And it's coupled with three other anxieties. One is the need in order to get housing, you have to have very secure employment or pretty strongly securely, secure employment. Those jobs are less available. It's interesting, I was at something that our teacher, Leo Vereiker, gave here in the university, looking to the next 40 years and what it's going to be like for young people. It was in, um, earlier in the summer. And, you know, one of the comments that was made by, one, I think it was Owen Harrison, one of the ministers made, oh, well, you know, the, you know, kids born today, by the time they're in the 20s, we don't even know what the jobs are yet that they're going to have. You know, this is the nature of technological world. And that may be true. So if you think of the number of, of jobs that have disappeared in the last 10 years that young people would have got, you know, even when you go to an airport now, you weigh your own luggage. You know, post offices, you know, all the whole banks, you know, your own banking. And that's technology and it's all taking over. And we could argue there are new jobs in technology. There are two kind of concerns about that that I have for young people. One is for young people who want to get affordable housing and want to get independence in life, it's a bigger struggle. A, and B, the likelihood of them having the skill set to actually get those jobs, I think, is far more challenging. 
And frankly, I think, and I say this ironically as somebody who works in a university and I'm a latent academic, the assumption that every young person has to go to university is a very interesting assumption that we make, that as though almost getting to university is the achievement in itself. There are many young people who get to university and come out with degrees and find they can't get work. And that is increasing all the time. And I think there is an onus on universities as much as secondary schools that we need to start thinking differently about what education actually means. A, what we're educating people for. And B, we need to think more about actually gently pushing people towards education where they're far more likely to get a job. And I think that, you know, that is a real serious policy question. The correlation, we know from the Sustainable Development Goals, the correlation between Goal 4, which is quality education, Goal 3, which is around well-being, mental health, and, and the goal around security, which is about Maslow's hierarchy needs. I have a house, I have a home, you know. And these are really important questions. And where the rubber hits the road is if you look at the number of people who are returning to their parents' home because they can't get a home themselves. So when I was younger, I listened to Bob Dylan and Leonard Cohen. I couldn't wait to, no, well, couldn't wait reasonably to get away from my mother and live an independent life. You know, which, growing up in Dublin was a very normative thing, uh, and people did that. And you, people married younger and drifted, drifted into that system. Now, um, there are many young adults in their 20s, even in their 30s, who don't own their own home, who have got employment that's kind of in and out type of employment or employment that gives them an income but not a high enough income to get a mortgage. And they're drifting back in into their homes and that's causing stress and strain. Now, there's some people who may choose to do that and that's fine. So it is it is different and it kind of annoys me a little bit that older people, and we look, we've look we looked a lot at intergenerational research here, looked at older people reflecting back on on their lives and I'm not being anti-aging and saying this or anti-ageist but many people say oh the young people don't have it half as hard you know it's really interesting if you think about that so if you think about the fact that whereas suicide for youth suicide is a huge it's an epidemic problem no matter what we look at it we've done some research on this and it kind of bothers me a little bit that we have so much young male suicide in Ireland and what bothers me is it's never been talked about as much before as we do talk about it now it's really talked about and there never have been as many services as there are now. And yet it's still increasing. So I think when older people say, oh, it was tougher in my day than it is now, you know, that's a kind of a false argument. I think there are challenges for young people, challenges around social media that weren't there before. And social media is a good thing. I think it's a blessing and a curse. But um, So when you couple all these things together of likelihood to be able to get a house of your own, to have live independently on a long-term basis in the comfort of knowing that you have some kind of a job that will be there for you. It's a lot more challenging now. You've obviously highlighted and kind of referenced that the one thing that I suppose that's going to be guaranteed is continuous change and reinvention. Probably uh, a few generations ago, that idea of kind of change, you kind of maybe changed who you were and defined yourself and, and maybe you continue that possibly till the rest of your, to the end of your days. And it seems that maybe we're kind of all going to have to be kind of continually in transition is that something that's possible or is that kind of even a very simplistic way of, of thinking about how uh, li- our lives are yeah so I, I i think no it's not i think it's a very good very accurate and it's interesting our university president at graduation says to young graduates you know you may have to reinvent your career a couple of times we weren't saying that in the 60s to people or the 70s or even the 80s or even the 90s actually 
So I think, yeah, there is this flux and this change. And one of the things where we have to get better equipped at is feeling comfortable around that. And it not been seen as demeaning in any way that you have to change your career or that you've no career for a while. I, I, and I do think that this will change. I think so, for example, even if you look at young people's use of Facebook and uh, Twitter and so forth. So young people now are really interested in vinyls. My kids have taken all my wife and I, our Johnny Mitchell collection has now been replayed. You know, there was a point when they were scratchy and I didn't want them. Young people have gone retro on listening to music in, in different ways. I think young people will go retro on social media. I think it'll become cool not to have an iPhone. It'll become cool not to be taking photographs of your meal and sending them on Instagram. These kind of changes on technology will balance itself out. There is an epidemic of worry around social media, which is quite justified. I think similarly in terms of how we, how we have our lived lives. The feminist movement came out with a great theory called relational cultural theory that we're kind of a bit interested in. And that suggests that your presence, not that's P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E, is actually more important than we think. And that we may have to live in, in both the present and presence with each other in a different way in civic society. And what I mean by that is that I think it'll become totally normal. It may become very normal that you only work two days a week, three days a week, with a lower salary, and we just have slowed things down. You know, rather than thinking that it's all about the next job and it's all about the kind of the push and the kind of nine to five kind of rat race thing, to be honest with you, I think we eventually will come. We may be forced to come that way. Rat racing ourselves out of yeah. out of the wheel almost. Rat ra- exactly. I think we just literally like we'll just fall off the wheel. Mm-hmm. It's just spiraling, 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 and then suddenly you know, well, actually, what's this all about anyway? And you know, it does come back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, there's no point in talking about this stuff if you don't have cornflakes on or whatever on the table. But not everybody has to fly to the moon. Not everybody. I think we need, you know, it sounds preachy, but I think we do need to value all the jobs that people do. I mean, even if you think of the way we are towards people who serve us food, it's probably one, you know, food security now is a huge issue, but or will be a huge issue into the future. But even if you think of the fact that, you know, um, the respect that we need to give to people who serve us food and respect the job that they're doing. You know, it, it's kind of a reciprocal uh, understanding that we need to come to. You know, I think that's beginning to happen. And maybe in some ways the crash of the Celtic Tiger as was, and maybe another one again, you know, may have um, may have levelled us a bit. It's interesting, by the way, if you look at, I was looking at uh, research that was written around 1929, 1930 after the Wall Street crash, how people began to really value stuff that they didn't value before. It's interesting that if you look at research by Rob Chaskin on 9-11 around New York and Manhattan, how people in New York and Manhattan after 9-11 actually started saying hello to each other because of the trauma. Previously that, people didn't say hello in the subway. So, you know, events in life, global events and national events and economic events can determine change. And from an employment point of view, you know, this is, you know, we've moved better towards gender equality, not far enough. But, uh, you know, I do think that this will come full circle and I do think there will be, we'll go through a process where there'll be a better understanding of what, what's expected. And I guess bringing it towards the, the concept, concept of a home, I guess home ownership is associated with be having your own independence economically and your own, I suppose, space, you know, denotes a kind of 
I am an adult and I'm not someone who is in in support. Um, I can support myself. Is that something that maybe now is causing a little bit of tension because that expectation may be still there, but it might be possible to fulfill? And is that something that's going to have to change in terms of the expectations, what we should expect of uh, people who are 20 to 30 year old? Yeah. So well, I think that's a great question. I think, well, first of all, if we look, I'm using Ireland as an example, and I'm going to use it a very different example in a second. So if you take it in Ireland, our social demographics are showing overall um, family size is, is growing um, um, and men and women are, are having children later in life. So, you know, that, that is a, a factor. The other factor is we live much longer, which is really interesting. So children born today, Eamon, Professor Eamon O'Shea here, who's a, a gerontologist and has done a lot of research on dementia, he's saying that, you know, children born today are far more likely to see 100. So when I was a young person, the president sent a telegram, you know, it was like a big, it was in the paper. There's going to be a lot more of those 100, I don't know what they get, a thousand euros or something, I don't know what they get. A lot more of those letters going out, um, whoever our president is, we're in the middle of an election at the moment. Um, the, um, so, the first thing is that older people dependency on younger people and the cost of caring is a huge factor. So one of the problems we have for young people is a lot of older people are going to have to sell their houses that they normally would have passed on, that their children would have inherited because they're going to need the sale, the money from the sale of the house to pay for them in a nursing home. That's a, that is a huge factor. And, you know, if tomorrow... If the number of people, adults in their 20s and 30s who are caring for older par- older people were to say to the state, I'm not doing this anymore, it would cost the state a fortune. Caring for older people is a massive issue. So that's one factor that is going to diminish the supply of houses that naturally would have passed down between generations. I think in Ireland it may move to where what it's like in some European countries where, putting it very bluntly, the grandfather buys the house and the grandson pays off the last payment on it, or granddaughter pays off the last payment. It may take two generations to pay off the house because of costs and because of, and that will be one where it's occupancy based. Now it's not that unusual. I mean, in um, where I'm from in, in inner city Dublin, my father was born there, that's my grandmother. You know, it's not that unusual, but but I think we will we will see intergenerational mortgages. That's definitely going to be, you're going to see in the horizon. But it's interesting the way that in other cultures, I'm doing work at the moment, Dr. Carolyn Nash, who's based in Myanmar, who's, you know, has been a lot of work with uh, Rohingya youth and we're involved in, you know, things are pretty bad out there. But it's very interesting that if you talk to people, or in Vietnam, it would be another example, where, where you have housing and automatically the parents are already building an extension onto the house for their son or their daughter. They're thinking, and their son or daughter might be only three or four, they're thinking ahead, this is... This is how I pass on the torch. Uh, not, you know, it's not possible to do that. Although in rural Ireland, maybe in farms, you could. Argue. But I think overall, what you're going to see is more pressure, less likelihood of young people. If social policy keeps going the way it's going, less people been able to afford a mortgage, and either renting longer term, which is not a good idea, or waiting to inherit a house. The two options. It is interesting, by the way, that although I don't know if government policy will, because homelessness is such an issue in Ireland, it's such a crisis, the number of people who go towards homelessness, who previously were on that border, that young person that could have possibly got a mortgage, is increasing. That's a real worry. So there's that boundary between I nearly can afford a house, to I pay rent, to I don't have a secure job, to I'm homeless. 
people think that's miles away that's a couple of pay packets away for some people and that's the one that I think really government policy and housing and young people will have to get right and it is interesting I wrote about this in the Irish Times a good few years ago where the Icelandic model was about when the crash hit Iceland the first thing they identified was vulnerable families that needed support and acted early it's interesting it's only now we're talking about debt forgiveness and we're talking about supporting families and we're 10 years after the crash and it does bother me I'm using morally with a small m but it does bother me that it's interesting that when the crash happened the first thing that was worried about was how we bail out the banks it wasn't about how we bail out families and we're paying the cost of that now and I think we're going to see sadly see more of it into the future. Do you feel how the state what the state's relationship to people's housing housing needs are going to have to add a generational shift because you mentioned the obviously how maybe for someone for possibly someone who's a little bit older the, the distinction you make between nearly being able to have a mortgage from rent just being able to rent to being on the street is kind of only a few pay packets away is that something that could possibly only be understood by people who've maybe know what that is like and, and or do you feel that actually it is it is shifting kind of now I, I think it is shifting now because... And when I say generational shift, I mean kind of a, a, a new generation of kind of politicians, so kind of, you know, yeah. age-wise. Yeah, I think it is shifting. But, I mean, we had Peter McFerry here last summer speaking at a conference, and Peter was talking just over a cup of coffee. Um, you know, Peter is very forthright in what he says. And uh, I have a sister, Teresa, who works with Brother Kevin in, in the Caption Friary in Church Street. They're feeding homeless people. You know, there's people coming in who are previously um, quantity surveyors, you know. So the nature of the homeless population has changed drastically to the shame of this country. We have children now increasingly who are homeless in cars and all these things. So I think there's a, just a new problem there. It's different kind of homeless problem. And getting back to your question then about kind of, is it, is it well, maybe one of the things we maybe have to start thinking differently about is the whole term house ownership. I'm not saying is that you just go to rent, but we need to maybe think about a much more collective. I know that the municipality in um, in Unza in Denmark, on a piece of work I did with Peter Steen Jensen many years ago, they moved to a model which was like social housing, but wasn't so. It was so. It was a, it was kind of a a rental purchase, long term rental purchase, low burden type of mortgage. It was done on the economic argument that overall in the longer term. If you keep people out of the homeless realm or out of needing services, including mental health services, the state will save money. It actually saves more money by nearly buying the house for the person. That may seem crazy, but actually there's a logic behind it from a, a purely social return on investment perspective. And that's not a new argument. If you, argument, if you look at Jim Heckman, the economist, his argument was that for every penny you spent in early years, you get it back in later. You know, So the, you know, there's a whole uh, social return on investment argument about about people's mental health and, and so forth and criminal you know it's criminal as well it's the justice system it's right across the board i do think we will need to move to some kind of a model like that or maybe just in ireland we may need to think just here you know one of the arguments that um has been made it was in one of pat mccabe's novels written brilliantly in the brilliance of the crazy way pat Wright stuff you know about this idea that you know well uh you know i have to have my house it dates back to the famine you know that there's something in the Irish psyche, perhaps, about house ownership that makes us different, I think, to other countries in Europe. My daughter-in-law, Rebecca, is from Germany and from Berlin. And I know, you know, people, you know, talking to families in Berlin look at house ownership differently than we do here. So maybe it's maybe we need to start thinking about differently. I think the big thing is about sec- the word is security. 
is about accommodation that you are secure in and that you're not a burden or dependent on your family. And those are two things that I think are pretty reasonable aspirations. Maybe you could, if you can, talk about that that relationship to buildings and houses and land mm. in Ireland compared to other European colleagues or even maybe North America or Asia as well. Yeah. Or so, Africa. Yeah, 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 no. Um, well, so in, in Ireland... Um, so there's a huge migration to Dublin. It's a massive migration. So it's nearly, I think, one in 3.5 people in Ireland live in Dublin. Now, I say Dublin, I'm including... With, and the I'm, greater Dublin. The greater region. Dublin. And I'm, as a Dublin GA fan, I'm, I'm saying this with great respect to the Dublin <laughs> GA. I say this with, with my loyalty. But, um, but it also includes kind of Navin. You know, you go into Wicklow, Kildare, Nace. You know, that whole batch of an area which people here in Galway now are calling the Greater Pale or something, but they're only doing that when they're having a go at me about Dublin football. But the, one, one in three people are in that band. And then, you know, you go to rural Connemara and they're just empty houses. So, you know, at a very basic physics level, and it's a policy question, we really do need to think about decentralising industry and public services, including political services, out of Dublin. And there was an attempt to do that by a Fianna Fáil government a couple of years ago, if you remember, and there going to move you know I I think one or two departments moved the Department of Defence I think moved partly to, to near where I live in Galway but but overall it never happened so first of all there basically we need to the policy in Ireland has to be a move to a smaller urban development uh, which I think is in the 2040 plan certainly that is one thing we have to do if we had broadband right I mean technology there's no reason you know the other thing of course is that um, I was at a conference in uh, University in Penn State, where, we, where they talked about the fact that in years to come, university students mightn't even come to universities. Everything is going to be... Now, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know. But, you know, so, so the idea that, you know, if you live in rural Cavan, you don't necessarily have to take your degree in UCD. You, know, you don't physically have to be in Belfield. You know, the, the, so I think these things are things that will change. By doing that, it will open up the housing market. If you were to, if you were to think about doing that in an innovative way, NUI Galway has a site up in, uh, well, in, in with the Ursuline Convent up in St Angela's in Sligo, and you know Sligo is a town that, so I can see that kind of development happening, which I think is. So if you look then in um, the states, they really are suffering the urbanisation problem. You know, if you go to rural Pennsylvania, there's nothing for hundreds of miles, and then there's you know. So it's an extreme, exaggerated version of it. Or if you go to Asia, everywhere is overpopulated. So it's it's uh, it's the other extreme. Um, but certainly, I think the Scandinavian countries have got this much better. They do this idea of satellite towns and have created towns. And Sweden, particularly, has been very successful, and it's been a very effective financial social policy. But whether that you know that takes longer term planning, and one of the problems you have for politicians is very often politicians, when they plan, they plan for the lifetime of their government. They need to plan for the lifetime of their grandchildren, which is brave politicians, but bring them on. And yeah, well, you mentioned, you're kind of alluding to there that it's not unique, the, the kind of va- the kind of increasing concentration in urban areas. So when you say bring it out, I assume you're talking more about urbanizing other parts of Ireland more yeah, than yeah. bringing rural stuff to uh, to Ireland as such. No, I, yeah, I am. I'm, t- I'm, you know, it's not realistic to think of well, first of all, I think there's a whole community development argument around, even if you take uh, uh, colleagues here that have looked at, looked at farming, and, uh, you know, it's not my niche particularly, but I know they've looked at the way farms have got smaller and smaller. So the chances of a young person, a young man or woman, 
being a farmer and ha- making enough on their farm to live has decreased all the time. So all farmers have to have a second job. So farming policy has been, you know, the IFA have written about this. It's not keeping people on the land. A bit of a, a bit of a good turn up with things like uh, market farming and these things have helped a little bit, but but overall no. So you know that's a challenge in rural areas, but even in rural town areas. Now I have to say it's interesting. There have been examples where this has worked, and we haven't written enough about it or talked enough about it. So uh, I had a community development student of mine here, Frank Murray, a great great student. Frank looked at the um, Brazilian community in Gort. So Gort is a town 20 miles south of Galway here. A Brazilian community came in there and worked in basically in a factory and very much integrated really well with the local community from what I know of it. And it was a great example of where a town was invigorated by, by new people coming to live in it. It amazes me, and it has to amaze me when we think of some of the racism there is towards migration, uh, not just in Ireland, Certainly it's in America at the moment, but around the world. Whereas we think of there are many areas for people to live. The dean here, the, the, our dean here in the university, Professor Carlo Dunahoo, he estimates that we need thirty to 40,000 people coming into Ireland every year to boost up the, you know, you might say, why is that the case? Well, actually, if you've thirty or 40,000 people additional working, they pay tax. If they pay tax, part of their tax goes to help elder people, older people. So there's a whole economic argument that actually completely dispels the kind of, uh, you know, migration xenophobic fear. So I think um, a move towards a greater, you know, even cities like Limerick, uh, cities that would have been seen as cities, there is potential for growth. But I certainly don't think increasing the Dublin, the growth of Dublin area is a good thing. Certainly not. So I suppose to bring it back to... um I guess, yeah, if you're of a 20 to 30 year old, what I suppose are the expectations you should have? And you've probably touched on them there as well, obviously speaking to, you know, speaking to undergraduates and possibly postgraduates as well. What are some of the things that I suppose, without getting too self-helpy, what are the expectations that we would need to have today that maybe are that are possibly being imposed by an older generation that just, just are not relevant for what our lives are set to be? Yeah, that's so, not a big enough question. No, yeah, that's okay. <laughs> it's pretty easy. <laughs> well, I suppose the first thing to say for I think, and you know, from talking to a lot of students here, I think the first thing is believe it or not about hopefulness, uh, and that might seem like a funny thing to to say, but um, the advantage you have is that, the, the, ironically, the advantage is there are a lot of young people who are in the same position. If you were the only person in that position, uh, it's more difficult. The reason I say that is the more they're in the same position the more onus there is on the state, policy, civic society to come up with solutions to change it. If you talk to, um, as I've done, we have a a centre here that researches people who are living with autism, they would say that one of the biggest problems they have is their small population, although a growing population, and that for that reason they're not heard. So I think for many young people who are in their 20s, 30s, the first thing is solidarity in numbers, because the plight that you face is a common plight. The second thing is to really think about, rather than thinking about a big bang theory on your career, think of it as incremental and that you need to have choice and change, that you literally don't put all your horse, your money on one horse for your career perspective because you, you need to change because things are just changing. It's just the nature of it. But one of the key things I would always say is change from a secure base. 
and this is getting back to Maslow's principles. What I mean by that is, you know, even if you're in, you know, if you're a young person in a job that you may think is a dead end job, or you've you've gone into something that really, geez, I don't know if I really want to do. I would say, yeah, do absolutely don't stay in that job, but don't leave it until you have another option. And I think one of the things that we need to try to create in universities is a a more option based approach for people who've come out with uh, with both undergraduate and postgraduate degrees, and b a much more skill orientated approach to education. And that may seem, and that you know, I'm not being anti-theoretical in saying that but putting it very bluntly the number of jobs that you can get with theory aren't too many and I think we need to just be a bit more innovative and the last thing is you know it's interesting that in you know purely from an employment point of view there are trends and I see it in here so you know if every every I mean I've views on the leaving cert which myself and Killian have written about that you know it's a crazy thing but anyway leaving that aside uh, you know it's harder to do a good leave insert than it is to do a good PhD. And I could explain why that's the case. But it's just a crazy pressure over a 10-day or 12-day period in your life that if you're in any way ill or not up for it, you're screwed. It's crazy. Anyway, leaving that aside, you know, if you think about it, for people who go through an education system and come out the other side of it and are out there on the labour market, they need to have a options that are available to them but b they need to be positioning themselves that they can get those options and supported to position themselves and that's not kind of been a right-wing comment it's just that that bridge needs to be kind of broached with them and for them and i think there is a role in universities in helping young people post ba and post an ma even that can get them there yeah thank you very much